0: Safe journey, I trust?
1: Yes, and I didn't experience anything so surprising from Bristol to Albany as that that I witnessed here today. What's that? The Crown
0: negotiating the terms of service. I know. One has to reason with these Colonials to get them to do anything. Tiring, isn't it? But that's the lay of the land.
1: Hi, folks, welcome to Man Cave Movie Review, the podcast that reviews the good, the bad, and the ugly of movies for men. This is episode 48, and today we're talking about The Last of the Mohicans. This great and fantastic film stars Daniel Day-Lewis, Russell Means, Madeline Stowe, and Wes Studi. I am your host, Steve Michaels, and joining me is my good and dear friend, Mark,
2: Kentucky, Slover. Mr. Muncie has not the nature for sober podcasting. His Latinous voluptuousness combines with his Gallic laziness, and the result is he would rather make love to a bottle of stout than podcast. Nice.
1: I was almost going to get that one, but I didn't want to offend any of our French listeners if we have any. All right, also joining us is
3: our other good and dear friend, Ken. Holy shit, that's a lot of Indians. Roni. <laughs> well, like I said last week, uh, this is a Clash of Cultures movie. And where that movie had one style of hairpieces, this features another bloodier style of hairpieces. Yeah.
1: Very bloody hairpieces, exactly. All right. And uh, also joining us is our other good and dear friend, Jeff, Chief Shining Dome Muncie.
0: You know, after watching this movie a few times this week, I was wore out from watching... Hawkeye run, basically um, the equivalent of an Olympic marathon um, through each episode, over rocks, hills and dales, through streams, up sheer cliffs, and uh, into the arms of a woman.
2: You're just jealous.
0: Again, see the aforementioned comment about my sex life.
3: <laughs> <laughs> he is an energetic guy.
1: All right, folks, as I said, we are talking about uh, The Last of the Mohicans. And this is another in our rotation of our personal favorites or gems that have a special place in our hearts. Uh, This uh, particular one is our our good and dear friend Ken's, and it's another period piece. And this one is set during the French-Indian War, uh, sometimes also known as the Seven Years' War, as it was in Europe, I believe. Am I correct on that one? Yes. Yes. I I thought so. Awesome. I still know some history. Uh, This movie was made in 1992, and the plot is, and I will read from the IMBD page, because this one's actually pretty decent. Uh, British and French troops do battle in colonial America. With the aid from various Native American war parties, the British troops enlist the help of local colonial militia who are reluctant to leave their homelands, or their homes, undefended. A budding romance between a British officer's daughter and an independent man who was reared as a Mohican complicates things for the British officer as the adopted Mohican pursues his own agenda despite the wrath of different people on both sides of the conflict. I think that pretty much sums it up. I haven't seen this movie probably in about a good, I don't know, 10, 12 years. It's been a while. So I I remember bits and pieces of it, uh, particularly the battle scenes. You know, some of the other stuff was almost like watching it all over again, brand new, which uh, which was kind of neat. So, I don't know, Ken. This is uh, this is one of your favorites. So, why don't you uh,
3: give us some thoughts? Well, I'll say that uh, a few things about this that was why I think this is one of my favorites. Uh, I mean, I've got a lot of favorite movies, but this is a, this is high up on my list. I originally saw this at the theater. At the time this movie came out, it was doing well it was a you know big box office movie at that time and i know i keep saying this about movies but this is one of those movies that grabbed me and, you know that started and sucked you in and carried you away uh, the story is fairly simple it's a you know movie version of a classic you know james fenimore cooper novel an early american novel from i think the 1820s uh, the original novel, from what I understand, is very melodramatic, a lot more complicated. But they've made this into about seven or eight movies over the years. About every you know, 10, 20 years, it gets remade, because it's sort of an American classic. A few points I'd like just like to, to say about the movie is, again, it's a clash of cultures and a, a blend of cultures movie, where this movie is taking place at a time in you know, our history. And again, I'm a history buff, so this really... I really like this aspect. It's a point where you've got four cultures. You've got the French, the Indians, the British, and the Americans. And the movie has strong characters from... Colonists. Colonists. Yes, they're colonists, but they're American colonists. But that's the okay. truth. Yes, you, you, it's, it's important because this is, this is before the Revolution. I mean, the Americans are British subjects, and that's a major point that keeps getting brought up but you have this balance where no one of these groups is predominant they all rub up against each other in some cases they need each other uh that'll change as time goes on but this is sort of probably the last point in american north american history where that condition existed that's one point i wanted to make the characters are very strong i think Uh, Some people may say they're cartoonish, or not cartoonish, but stereotypical. But I think that uh, the the screenwriters, and I think Michael Mann, the uh, director, did a very good job of bringing these people to life. And final thing I'm going to say before passing it on is, this has several major characters, but the unnamed character or subconscious character in this movie, to me, was the wilderness. This is going on in the wilderness they've got a lot of beautiful scenes where it's like you are in the wilderness. And I like that. I mean, I thought they did a very good job of making you think, yes, this is the old days, this is a the frontier, there's no roads, you know, you're lucky to have a path. And having said that was my last point, I do want to point out one other thing. George Lucas didn't steal this from this movie, but this movie borrowed something, a feature of George of Star Wars that, uh, and did it better, which is the text at the very beginning that sets the scene sets where you're at and what's going on. You know, in the original it's like, you know, it's a time of trouble in the galaxy, that whole thing. This one has just a couple short and sweet little bursts of text. Boom, boom, boom. And you're there. Gives you enough to get your flowing right in. So that's, uh, it's, uh can't say again. Can't say George Lucas stole it because it's better than George Lucas did. And at that point, I'll shut up.
1: Yeah, I, I did like that part because it really did set the uh, set the tone and give you an idea of where this happened. Uh, one of the things I liked about this is that you don't see too many movies of this particular period, um, or at least with the with the. You know the political background uh, there. I mean, there's. I mean, you may see movies of that period, but not with the whole French Indian War, which I thought was really interesting, and that that was uh, that's what I think really makes this movie pretty unique. I agree. Um, yeah, Mark, what do you think?
2: This is one of my favorite periods, um, and I thought that this movie, in many ways, encapsulated and gave a very good history lesson in the sense of a fictional narrative um, to an audience. It took events and then took Cooper's book and made some dramatic license, such as the, the massacre after the fall of Fort William Henry, some of the characters. But it does a very good job of evoking a period and a time that most people are not very familiar with. Um, and I, I, this, I'm like Ken. When Ken said he wanted to do this, that was great for me because as far as I was concerned, this really is one of my favorite movies. And I think it's one of the more historically accurate movies of the period. We commented last week about language and evoking the spirit of the time in Rob Roy with the way people spoke. I think in many cases this does a very good job as well using some of the language and the the formality of language. Also, I really like that they use proper Indian. You know, the, the Huron are speaking Huron. The Mohawks are speaking Mohawks. There, there's conversations amongst the French. You, you see that bouillabaisse, as it were, of all these different cultures, um, working together or not working together. I think this is a really well done movie. And again, it's, it's so rare to see a colonial period movie, whether it's, uh, revolution or this period done and done well. I think you can maybe count, th- I can count three off the top of my head that are, that I can think of. So great movie. Um, it'll be fun to talk about it tonight.
0: Cool.
2: Jeff, thoughts? You know, I went to the movie
0: theaters and saw this, um, not necessarily as um, with you guys, but th- the one thing that I remember from this movie, and, and you know what? It, it, I think it still holds true to this day. This movie has some very realistic battle scenes in it that I don't think even modern movies really capture, um, the brutality um, of what you see in this movie. And that is another reason I like the movie is hand to hand combat is 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 pretty gruesome and pretty brutal and almost personal and you get that feeling watching these battle scenes in this movie. Um, it it doesn't look like it did in um, in Gettysburg where you know people are you know trying to be very careful about you know waving around bayonets and rifle butts. I mean things are being flung around as needed. And so it looks very authentic, and that's one of the one of the strong suits of this movie. Is the the action scenes are are very well done, and um, it, along with that, it has some of my favorite actors in the movie. One of them being Wes Studi. I, I'm very very happy to see that he's in about five or six productions that are coming out. Um, but this is my first introduction to Daniel Day Lewis, and I also thought that he did a fantastic job um, playing uh, playing Hawkeye. Um, so I really enjoyed his portrayal in this movie. You can't say enough about Michael Mann and his directing and cinematography. Scenes in this movie are are just outstanding, I think. It'll be a fun conversation tonight.
1: Uh, you know, while we're on the uh, subject of actors, let's talk about them a little bit. Daniel Day-Lewis, this is, uh, I think, probably one of his better roles that I've seen him in. Uh, I, I, I will confess I haven't seen that much of him uh, or haven't seen him in a lot of other movies. Uh, I don't like his IMBD picture because it's like, it's kind of creepy looking with the two hoop earrings. But uh, I, I did like him in uh, uh, this, and I also did like him in Gangs in New York. I know it's not a great movie, but he, he was a good, uh, he kind of stole the show on that one. But he, uh, he plays Hawkeye, and he is the uh, adopted son of a uh, 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 Mohican chief, I guess, at one point. So they they basically just kind of roam the uh, roam the forest, trapping and in that. Uh, so I don't know. I, I thought he did a pretty good job in this. Um, obviously, uh, he he held the hair well. That long foot. Yeah, he great head of hair. Yeah, he had a great head of hair. There's there's no doubt about that. Uh,
3: so this is this came out for him the year what a couple of years before he had done my left foot, in which y'all you know, he done. A number of roles before that, but he did that movie, and My Left Foot got all kinds of critical acclaim for him. Uh, Sort of a very intellectual, deep movie. And then this was sort of a shift out of that to, again, I don't know, an artsy European production to a big Hollywood leading man role. And, you know, ever since he did this movie, he's been on the radar screen for American audiences. I don't know if My Left Foot... My left foot put him there for the critics and the arts crowd scene, but Last Las was I think, locked him in for the rest of the country.
0: Because I wasn't really familiar with him or um, the uh, boy toy of uh, Fabio, at first I thought this was Fabio and his starring role, but I was quickly corrected by the people I was with. It wasn't Fabio, it was uh, Daniel Day-Lewis.
2: The, the other thing about Lewis is he's very much a method actor, and he's very particular about what roles he takes. And when he took this role, he essentially decided to learn by living in the wilderness with guys who are experts in colonial, in this colonial lifestyle. Um, He basically immersed himself for six or eight weeks and lived with guys who this is what they do. Uh, So he takes these kinds of things very, very seriously, almost to the point of obsessive compulsive. So when he did a lot of this, he did it he he had spent six, eight, twelve weeks just living out in the wilderness learning how to do it.
3: No, he moved and I guess that's how like
2: Yeah he moved like he'd been in the wilderness for a while. And I guess that's how he picks roles. He's very he doesn't do a lot of movies and he's very particular about the type of movie he does and what kind of role he plays. I think he's a little eccentric, would probably be a safe assumption.
3: <laughs>
2: probably a little bit. Uh, i
3: like to make sort of a, a comment, not about Daniel Day-Lewis, but about Michael Mann when he was putting together this movie, and this was a plus for me. I'm not going to say it's a pet peeve, but it kind of annoys me at times. There's a tendency nowadays, it started back in the early 90s, and it's carried forward ever since, that when you're having a period piece, Hollywood will round up a bunch of reenactors who know their stuff and have the right outfits and everything, and they they're in the background as extras. Michael Mann could have done that for this, but from what I understand, he didn't. He actually got a bunch of young guys and then had experts in this period drill them into, this is how soldiers work, this is how the Indians operated, so that, again, you don't have your Santa Reb phenomenon that we discussed in the Gettysburg movies. You don't have a bunch of paunchy 50-year-old somethings You're running around the wilderness. These are guys... You're looking at these soldiers and the other the Indians and everybody. You think like, yep, I don't doubt that that's what they are.
0: You know, Ken, that's a good point. And you know, if you look back at some of the films of, you know, gosh, I don't know, the 40s, 50s, and 60s that were portraying Native Americans in some capacity, it looked like a white guy. And they, I think, they went to great lengths to try to cast as, as many uh, Native Americans as they could, and to, to you know, for that. Uh, authenticity of the movie, and and I I appreciate it. You know, Michael Mann is one of those we haven't talked, I think, a great deal about. But um, you know, he I don't think he tries to take too many shortcuts. I mean, I really think he puts um, a lot of effort into making his movies as best as he, best he can and uh, avoiding as many shortcuts as possible.
1: And I think I think where you really see that, and the, the part of this movie that really grabbed me the most is um, after uh, Hawkeye and his. Um and his seal team took out that entire uh, Huron war party I mean his uh, father and brother took out that Huron war party uh, kind of like seal team six uh, <laughs> seal team six Bad is animal. probably watching this movie
0: we're, we're, no, right. no, this saying, this was a training video for yeah, seal team six
1: that's what I'm saying we're gonna we're gonna talk about a few things about that later uh, that <laughs> I mean it's like really but after they took out that party and then they get up to the uh, they get up to Fort McHenry and they see that scene where the uh, you know the bombs are going off or the cannons are shooting and stuff and you see that long panoramic view of just the trench works and everything in them going you know uh, the French set in and encamped and they're building you know they're building trenches all the way up to the uh, you know to the fort that was some impressive stuff you, you don't see that and probably would never see that again well you probably would but it'd be all cgi i mean this was again this is pre-cgi this is 92 and that was impressive i just thought that was wonderful the way they showed that
2: one of you mentioned michael Mann's attention to detail and there's a comment in the trivia about his obsession with this to the point that at least 20 takes for each setup and lengthy shootings so much so that it drove 20th Century Fox crazy because he was having 20 takes on average per shot that they sent someone out to stand as a representative for the studio to stand behind him and say nothing but the following sentence. That's enough, Michael. Move on.
0: <laughs> but I have to guess, if you're shooting outside, there's a, there's an element there regarding lighting and, and background that... You, it's almost like a trial and error. It's like, okay, let, is this going to be a better shot? Could this be a better shot? And for someone to, to consider, you know, doing it over and over again to make sure he has the best shot that he could get. A, I really appreciate that. B, from a business standpoint, sure, I get that it's costing money. But you know, this is what you get. I mean, I, in my opinion, this movie is one of the best shot movies um, of its genre, and. I think it goes to Michael Mann having a vision and wanting to make sure that he gets the shot right because I'm sure there's just so many things that can affect it.
2: And I agree with you. Um, I think it was just, it got to the point of, you got to get this thing done, too. And to your comment about a night, filming at night, at one point he started yelling, what's the orange light? Turn out the orange light. And an <laughs> assistant director shot back, that's the sun, Michael. They've been shooting all the time. That's awesome. I just I'm not knocking Michael man. I'm like you. I, I, I admire that he wanted to get this right, but at some point I mean I'm sure if you were sitting there as an actor, you're like, please God make it stop. I don't well, want to. Yeah, and up also
3: if you're the if you're the guy from the studio writing the checks, yeah. Yeah. But a thing about this, like I said in my little opening where I consider the the wilderness, the 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 evoking the wilderness to be almost a character in this movie. The way he set up shots of the the landscapes, the close up shots of the wilderness, that was great. There were a lot of scenes in this movie that reminded me of a period painting. Uh as an example, there's that scene with the bridge towards the beginning. Going like that's a beautiful it's like that'd be a beautiful painting hanging on my wall. But it's not a painting, it's a scene. Or the uh, the scene of these the surrender negotiations. Yeah. It's like, I've seen paintings of almost that identical scene. And to, to you know, go back on what Steve was saying, when I watched this movie, I've I spent my life, and I read all this history, military history, a lot of it, and I've read a lot about 18th century siege warfare. I mean, most people could care less about it. I think it's fascinating stuff. as almost an art. This movie got it. I'm I'm watching this thing going like, oh, my gosh, that is exactly how an 18th century siege would have been done, both both by the people in the fort and the people outside the fort. And the fact that Michael Mann took the time to set up the sets, create the actors, and then film it uh, really impressed me. Because it could have been so easy, like I said, he could have just built a log palisade, a couple of ditches, and had some overweight reenactors, and said, "Well, that's the siege." But he didn't. He went to a large amount of detail to get
2: it right. Well, the four more thing I want to jump in
0: and say here about his his decision making is this movie takes place in. Uh, in New York, um, in the uh, around the uh, Iroquois uh, Nation or Confederacy, he went there and looked at the area he wanted to shoot in, and said, "You know what? This forest isn't isn't accurate enough." And so he made the choice of not shooting in New York and going down to North Carolina, where he considered better old growth forest. Being at um, to shoot down there, we thought it would be just. I mean, just to get the trees in the forest. Ken, going to your point about um, you know, it being, you know, a focal point of the movie, he wanted to get the trees right. And, again, uh, you know, that just impresses me that he knew enough and considered that enough to not just accept New York as the standard location. Um, he wanted to go someplace that it just seemed a little more authentic.
2: And if you haven't been down there, it's, it's not far from Asheville, North Carolina. You can go to a lot of those places. They're parks or accessible you can tell you why he, he chose that area.
1: All right, uh, let's jump back over to actors again. I want to just real briefly talk about Madeline Stowe. She played Cora Monroe, who is the daughter of uh, Colonel Edmund Munro. I'll tell you what, she is uh, a gorgeous lady and is still absolutely gorgeous. Uh, she's in a she's in a series now called Revenge, and uh, haven't seen it. Don't know what it's about, but my
2: wife loves
0: it. Yeah, it's about revenge. Well, yeah,
3: well, this movie is about revenge, yeah
1: yeah I, I just I mean I look at her and she's just she's just a stunning woman and she still is uh, uh, a knockout yeah I thought she, I thought she was okay in this I, I thought her role was a little stiff uh, she did have um, uh, you know one um, heated moment of passion when she was uh, yelling at her father about sedition, but uh, yeah, she wasn't too bad, but then again, you know I wasn't really you know worried about her lines or how she delivered them.
2: You know, it's another movie that we've had where we've had a a strong female, and I think she does a a credible job, but who realizes that she has to step up outside of her comfort zone. And whereas her sister Cora, I think it's Cora, Alice, Alice Alice doesn't, she's Cora, yes,
3: Alice, she's Cora,
2: Alice falls, Alice can't, Cora can, and I, you know, I think it's reminiscent of how. When Rob Roy, um, Rob Roy's wife, manages to get through a horrible situation, uh, I think I think this movie is another one where you have the opportunity to present a a female in a strong setting and someone who's got the ability to adapt. And it's kind of nice to see that.
1: Well, it almost seemed like she didn't adapt so much as she kind of knew what the heck she was doing because she had no compunction about picking up a gun when she needed to. Uh, well,
2: her daddy was a colonel.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. Last but not least, I want to talk about West Duty. He played Magwa, and he was kind of the uh, uh, likable bad guy in this. Uh, definitely, uh, uh, definitely a man on a mission, if you will, for this one. He was uh, his whole purpose was to kill Colonel Monroe and also kill his two daughters, basically in revenge for Colonel Monroe. Um, what he wiped out his village when he was young, I think it was. Yes. Yeah, so he he played a great part. I mean, he was just. I mean, you, you, you hated him, but you also understood where he was coming from, uh, because he just was. Uh,
0: like I said, he was definitely a man on a mission. But Steve, let me ask you this: Why I loved watching him in this movie? Let me ask you: Why, why, why do Why would you hate him? I mean, I understood him wanting.
1: The, I guess that's the thing. It's like you know, there's revenge about. You want to go after the guy that you know killed your killed your family, but I mean, are you? Is, is your revenge then fueled by so much hatred that you're going to go kill his kids? I don't know. That that rubbed me a little bit. But then again...
3: Well, well I, I'm going to say right now, there's a story coming out of the news from L.A., and that's exactly what this guy is doing. People do this. They do go after kids. I know. If you're I, really serious I, about it.
1: I think they're evil people. I just, you know, well, I didn't like him. I just... I mean, I like his character. Like you said, don't get me wrong. It's not like West Studi. I mean, it was just, he portrayed that character right. And I'm also looking at the fact that, you know, maybe that was a cultural thing. Maybe that's how the the Hurons dealt with that type of thing is that, you know, you don't just go after the
0: guy that wronged you, you go after the whole family. Well, but somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought when he was talking to the, the French Emperor. commander that he, he explained that Monroe was responsible for killing his son. Is that correct?
3: Well, if, I thought this was some really good writing because up till you know, they introduce Magwa when you're first watching the movie, you're thinking Magwa's on art. He's on the, for lack of a better term, he's on our side. Okay. The British yeah. and colonials. He's a, he's, he's on the British and colonial side. All of a sudden, boom, he's not, he's betraying them. He's doing all sorts of killing and hacking and slashing. And you're thinking he's a really bad guy. And it would have been easy just to say, well, he's just the bad guy. But they went and took in that scene that Jeff just described, and in about a minute of dialogue created all of a sudden a bunch of complex motivations and backstory that Steve is talking about. Where it's like, okay, I I get it. Yeah, I I see where Mog was coming from. So I can't hate the guy, but he he is a man that is driven by revenge and just fury over what's been done to him in the past.
2: And to that point, the other issue is, in the frontier at this period of time, because I've got some family history related to this, this was the norm. This was not uncommon. If you read accounts of massacres or attacks up and down the frontier, Indian tribes or colonials would wipe out men, women, children. I've got, a, I've got an ancestor, John Slover, he was taken by one of the Iroquois tribes after his mother and father and sister were killed and his baby sister had her brain stashed out against a tree. And if you read Alan Eckert's books, which I highly recommend, and I'll, we'll talk about those later, I'm not condemning it, I'm not condoning it. It's just that is the way the world worked back then, especially yes. when it was on the frontier, when it was raid and counter-raid. In 21st century view it's horrific 18th century you look at it and go that's just the way things were and i'm very i'm not sympathetic to magua but i i can't say that if i weren't pushed that hard i wouldn't do the same thing
0: i guess that's my point if if his village was wiped out and they killed his son yep i'm not going to sit here and say that if somebody came in and murdered my family that i'm going to go i'm just going to let the legal system take care of it no I'll tell you what I am sympathetic to him. I'm very sympathetic to his character, and that's why this movie I think does a great job of doesn't say, it doesn't say that who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. This guy has some clear motivations. You know what? He's just not some guy who's out here just you know just raping and pillaging just for the hell of it, just because he can, just because he has a, a no leash, and his leaders have said go and do what you want to. No, th- this guy has complete motivation to go and do this, and you understand that you know what he's after this guy and he's after his kids because you know it's an eye for an eye and you know you you know we cannot try to rationalize and try to understand people over you know 300 years ago and their motivations and what they were trying to do it's just that's just silly but i don't
1: I, I don't have to understand him i just think it sucks it's like kill the guy that killed your family but i mean his kids didn't have anything to do with it but like he, mark he said a,
3: that's what they did well, I know that's
1: what they did. That's why I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not arguing that that's what they did. not That's I, I'm just saying, my sympathy stops when he's going to turn around and go after the kids. It's like, all right, well, now you're an asshole.
3: <laughs> that's just how I I'd see that. I want to make a point about Magwa, which it just sort of hit me when I was watching this a couple of days ago, you know, to get ready for this podcast. And I'm watching this, and all of a sudden it hit me. Magua speaks at least four languages fluently in this movie he's, he's a very intelligent man there's the scene where he's with the sachem he basically steps up and says sachem here's my plan for the euro this is what we need to do and you know stepping back and looking through history he was right that's what they should have done but they didn't so Mog was a smart guy very capable he's a great leader a great warrior Again, he's driven by revenge, but, you know, like we, I think we've established, you can understand him. I'd like to also, in terms of Magua, I'd, like I'd like to just take a second to talk about uh, the portrayal of the Marquis de Montcalm, who isn't a key player in this movie, but he's important. I mean, he's the commander of the French and Indian forces in the siege. He's a, He's a historical figure. He's a very important figure. Uh, and that was played by uh, a gentleman named Patricia Rowe. But Montcalm is, like, he's a complex character as well and a man of his time. And going back to our talk about uh, Rob Roy, you can almost say that he's kind of boppish, to use that term. There are scenes in here where, like, he put that Archibald Cunningham guy, to shame in terms of the social graces and the bowing and the flourishes and such but at the same time this guy's he's he's a cold calculating person who's maneuvering other people to do his whim and uh i I was very impressed by that portrayal because it would have been real easy again to just have a generic guy in a french outfit saying, showing up and making a few speeches and disappearing they made him into a complex character
2: Real quick, Ken, to to point out to the listeners, too, if you're not familiar with the period, many of the names and the people you see in the movie, for example, the Marquis de Montcalm, General Monroe, or Colonel Monroe, Webb, all of these people existed, even down to, you briefly see um, de Bougainville, Captain de Bougainville. De Bougainville was the aide-de-camp to Montcalm and wrote an incredible diary, kept an incredible diary about his experiences during the French and Indian War. So m- many of the characters you see in the movie are actually historical figures that I think are very well done. Now, Monroe does not die at in the massacre. He dies in Albany later from natural causes. But I think they were very thoughtful, too, about the type of, if you see images of these individuals, they also tried to find people who looked like and mirrored, the behaviors and the imagery of these people and the period. You know, again, we're back to the lace war period. You, you still have the honors of war being extended at the surrender. Montcalm is very serious, and so is Monroe, about the rights of the vanquished and the rights of the victors. And that stuff, I enjoy that because that is so well done in this movie. That whole surrender that takes place outside the fort is one, is one of the most effective scenes to me in the movie.
1: And that's a beautiful scene, too. Just with those, yes. f- the way those flags, I almost wonder if he had a bit, big, like, jet fan somewhere. <laughs> it's blown. Gorgeous scene.
3: It reminds yeah. me, you know, I, I recently, during my vacation back in the fall, I went to Yorktown. And they got, you know, this famous painting of the surrender at Yorktown. And you look at that scene as they set it up, and it's like almost the same, except you got yep. the backdrop and the beautiful scenery and the lake in the distance and everything. Uh, again, very well done. and I'm with Mark where when I'm watching the movie, yes, I knew all about it. I'd read books about you know, how in the old days they would give the honors of war. And for those of you listening, and I don't want to go into great detail, but the idea here was if you surrender and leave, you can leave. I mean, take your guns, take your flags, go home, but you just got to promise on your honor not to come back and fight again. And that's the deal they gave, and you never see that. I've never seen that in any other movie, but that is what they did in this period. It's not something they made up as a dramatic you know, device in the film. It was a real historical fact, and it is what happened right. at the Siege of Fort William Henry.
1: Let's see. Let's talk, um, let's talk a little bit about the trivia in this movie. There's some interesting stuff here. Mark, already talked about a couple, but I like this one here. Is, uh, while filming the canoe scenes, the canoe always tipped, F. Curtis Gaston uh, soldier Number 1 recalls having to save upset Jodie May. That was Alice Monroe from The Cold Waters. She's probably upset because she had such a crappy part in the movie. Um, let's see. Hawkeye's real name in the
3: novel. I beg to differ, but go on. That's okay.
1: Hawkeye's real name in the novel is Natty Bumpo, but was changed to Nathaniel Poe uh, for the film to avoid titters from the audience. Jodie May has said that much of her role disappeared on the cutting room floor. Well, That probably explains a lot. Uh,
2: let's see. Uh oh this this guy's this would have been awesome.
1: Brian Cox was offered the part of Colonel Monroe. That would have... He
2: would have done a great job. Uh, now the guy who played Monroe I thought was fantastic.
1: Yes, and um yeah, he did. I mean, he did a really good job. I liked it, yes. but I mean, yeah, but that's another that's another role that Brian Cox was just born for. You could have just yes. seen that. I
3: you are right. I mean, Brian Cox would have been great. And again, a gentleman named Maurice Roev Roeves, I think is how you pronounce his name was Monroe, but he did, he was a powerful character. He dominated scenes he was in. Also, I, I, again, I got to throw in just a comment about a character and that's a Duncan Hayward, major Duncan Hayward. Uh, was played by Stephen Waddington. He, to me, he was an interesting character because on one level, they're sort of setting him up to be this fish out of water, pompous British twit sort of character, but he wasn't. I mean, he would pop out. I mean, in his own way, he's sort of a badass fighter when you push game to shove, but he was out of his element. And I thought that was a very good portrayal. And in the end, a, a man of honor, and who did, did the right thing in the end, It came from sort of a bad end. Right. Uh, let's see. Oh, Jodie Mays'
1: mother was on the set and wouldn't let there be a real love scene uh, between her and um, Eric Schweig, who played uh, Unka,
3: Well, did you know that Jodie May would have been about 16 when she was filming this movie? Yeah, she looked it. So I can understand why her mom would be on the set.
1: Uh, Let's see.
3: Annie
2: McDowell was also considered for the role of Cora Monroe. Woman couldn't act her way out of a paper bag. (laughs) Did I say that out? Did that come across the
0: speakers? Did I say that? I thought she was the saving grace in uh, Groundhog's Day.
2: <laughs> Don't drive angry. Here we go. Don't <laughs> drive angry. Okay. If Madeline
3: Stowe was in Groundhog Day, would that have been an improvement? I say yes.
2: Yes.
0: Anything would have been an improvement, especially if they hadn't if Lonnie, made the movie.
2: If Sonny Catane had been in <laughs> oh, that All right,
1: guys, you want to talk about soundtrack? What do you think?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so that's a yes, we do. So when you're ready,
2: I'd
1: like parts of it. Then there were other parts I was like, eh. I like the Scotch Fiddler. That was pretty
3: good stuff. As I was commenting back last week when we were talking about Rob Roy, and again, that was done about the same time, and it was that time when the Celtic music was washing up on our shores. It was a a big hit of interest in that period. And it fits, because... uh, I'm not going to great, again, historical detail, but, I mean... Lots of Scotch people settle on the frontier. That's the kind of music they played. Well, there was
0: a Scottish music, but there was also just straight up symphony music, too. Which for me, any, you know, I have a kind of a soft spot for Randy Edelman. So anything he does, I kind of have sort of a um, an enjoyment for. So to me, listening to the soundtrack, it, there there's a lot of music in this movie and it plays softly over several key scenes. And you don't, I don't think, realize it unless you're listening for it. But, I mean, the the thing I, I did enjoy is there's a lot of variation between a lot of the music throughout the movie, and you guys kind of pointed out the the key differences. I think it's I think it's a very good soundtrack, um, one that is you know you know that that you could play alongside Gettysburg, which you know he also did. So I I have zero issues with it.
2: You know, one of the things that grabbed me about this soundtrack when I saw it in the theater, when I saw the movie in the theater was the opening scene. Where you hear the, the the main sequence, how evocative it is of the imagery of the of the landscape, and it's not it's before you even see Nathaniel and the two Mohicans, it's just very sweeping and evocative. I think it mates itself very well to the the He's, cinematography.
3: I agree. The pace of the music it varies between scenes. But it almost like perfectly matches the action that you're watching. It's slow when they're sort of just ambling along. It's faster paced when they're running or chasing.
2: You know, and Steve, you mentioned the Scottish Fiddler. Yeah. The violin solo. Mm-hmm. That movie came out a few years after the Civil War. And it was when I fell in love with the, the piece from the the, the movie, the, the miniseries, the Civil War, Ashokan Farewell. And it, it very, you, You'll know that if you ever saw the civil war the PBS can burn series of civil war yeah. that piece was played for whatever reason those two just resonated as if they were yin and yang that they were they were tied together well,
1: I'll have to check that out. I don't think I I think yeah,
2: we could probably get it. I've never seen Oh, easily. Yeah, it's it's um I think by Jay Unger but it's called Ashokan Farewell and it was the main theme for the The Civil War, and then listen to that, and then listen to the fiddle theme from Last of the Mohicans. Mm -hmm. And it's not that they're the same, but they're complementary in different reasons.
1: Right. Okay.
2: And for some reason, that just really struck me when I went to see this in the theater, because I had seen the documentary, The Civil War. Right. But I'm like you. I like that music. I love that type of music, the Celtic music. I mean, I
1: liked it, parts of it that I liked, and there were other parts that, it's not that I didn't like it, it just didn't, you know it did, it didn't hit me is like okay, this really stands out, but i mean it's it's not bad i mean like I said I thought it was it, it it definitely fit the period I thought the music towards the end when they were uh having the uh fight on the um like the cliff edge or whatever the hell that was that they were on I thought that music that that stood out that stood out to me, and those were some rough scenes to see uh, obviously magwa was a much better uh much better knife fighter than uncas but um
2: Although, did you notice in that scene when there's a gigantic, obvious goof, if you catch it, is when Uncas has been killed and his father and Hawkeye are running to chase down Magua. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, as Hawkeye, runs into the side of a rock formation as he's he's clearing, coming up the path. It's an inflatable rock because he bounces off (laughs) of it. (laughs)
3: I didn't see that. Well, Hawkeye. I I will say this. I'm going to say this for Uncas. You know, the last of the Mohicans is Chingachgook. His son is Uncas, and his adopted son is Hawkeye. Daniel Day Lewis. He's here the whole thing. He's a. I have to just describe. He's the strong, silent type. He doesn't say much. Has a few lines, but you can sit there and say, "Well, you know, Mog was a tougher fighter than him." But like, he's no slouch. I I mean, to get the Mogwai, he went through about. What six or eight guys took them out single handed? Well, you know, let let's talk
1: about that a little bit because that was one of the things that kind of struck me in the movie, and that's why I kind of made the joke early on that you know Hawkeye and you know his SEAL Team Six compatriots, because uh, it, it just that scene when they were marching in the woods uh, when um, uh, what's his name when the British officer uh, I, I forgot his name already. Right? Yeah, Duncan, He was taking the uh, taking the the daughters over to Fort McHenry, and they had a you know they had a company of uh, British troops with them. And there was a couple things that I noticed there. First of all, when they got in that first fight, I was talking to Jeff about this earlier in the week. After when the Indians came out and just pretty much just wiped the floor with these guys, I kept thinking to myself, now how did we conquer this continent? It just seemed like they went through them like shit through a goose. And then here comes Hawkeye with SEAL Team 6, three of them, and went through those guys like shit through a goose. It just seemed like in any time there was a battle, the Brits went down like ten pins. (laughs) It's just like, okay, Uh, maybe they're just not good at hand-to-hand. And then there was another part of that, too. Did you notice that that column, it was broken in two. There was a column in the back, and there was a column in front. And And Duncan was in the middle and it was kind of like when the when the the attack came it's like what happened to the other column did they just keep going and not come back that just kind of struck me there first cause it's and i don't know if that was just a a blooper in the middle of the movie or something like that but there was two distinct columns of troops and and it just seemed like the first column just kind of went off their way and let the other guys get butchered i don't know just that that was just something that just kind of struck me like i said they they went down why real fast.
0: Well, Ken, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I've read about this period of time, in the early stages, as far as fighting against Indians, the British were severely at a disadvantage. And they had suffered a, a lot of defeats during this period. And England had to really reallocate a lot of assets over here, which kind of increased and upped the Um, the war, because the French started doing the same thing. And uh, over time, and maybe through attrition, um, the British started to gain the upper hand.
3: Well, I'll I'll jump in. Mark can jump in on this, too, because Mark's probably more knowledgeable or as knowledgeable as I on this period. But uh, a great movie, which remains to be made, is The Adventures of Young George Washington on the Frontier. Two years before the, the events in this movie was the attack, Braddock's attack on Fort Duquesne, where Pittsburgh is. The a British army went into the wilderness. What George Washington is like a, a key figure, young man, like twenty one.
0: Wasn't he a colonel? And
3: scenes scenes just like you see in this movie. If you read the history books, it's like it's just what happened in this movie. The British forming their ranks, you know, well drilled troops. But Indians swarming out of the, the uh, wilderness, you know, shooting you know, in skirmish order. They chopped, the, you know, the, the the French and the Native Americans chopped British units like this up all the time. And part of it is, they'd been fighting British every 15, 20 years, there's another war. They were used to fighting British, but the British were always shipping in fresh troops from Europe that didn't know how to fight in the wilderness. The Mar- uh, Steve's got a point They set up this scene, they do show two distinct elements with Duncan in the middle and then the next thing you know, where'd the other element go? I just took that to the point that he was on his horse, he was riding back and forth, he just sort of rode to the front of the column when the whole thing hit. And this is my defense of your SEAL Team 6 thing. (laughs) If you're watching that scene, Indians are going down. I mean, the British aren't just going down without a fight, they're struggling. They're bayonetting and hacking and you know, butt stroking. They take out about half those Indians all by themselves. Then again, Hawkeye and Uncus and Shingas Chuck jump in with a little bit of surprise and they don't kill them all. Obviously, uh, uh, Magwa and a bunch of the guys, they just say, yep, we don't know what's going on here. We're running. So yeah, they, they lost their morale, their morale cracked and they ran. So, i I can live with that. But going back to Jeff's scene, Jeff's comment at the start, this movie does a I thought a great job showing the brutality of the close up fighting that my read of history says went on to the frontier. Again, if you want to read a good if you want to read a book to get a feel for this era before you watch the movie, get a book called Wilderness Empire by Alan Eckert. Read it. It'll I mean and you'll go like, well, when you're when you're watching scenes and going like, well, oh, that's not realistic or that's not credible, you're going, nope, it is credible because stuff like that really happened. Well, I'm
1: not saying it, it was incredible. It just it's it was more of that question of how the hell
2: did we beat these guys? <laughs> and and to answer that, Jeff or Steve, that's a really good point. And very simply, when you read Indian accounts, um, and I, I'm actually reading a book, a biography on Tecumseh. The bottom line is they said the only we pound for pound, one on one, we can outfight them. There's too many of them. Right. It is just an inundation of white men. We can kill twenty, there will be two hundred more behind them. And that well, and to your point, that's that's what happens is for every warrior, the Indians raise warriors. The white man raises a soldier or militia. I can raise twenty Militia to your one warrior who's taken a lifetime. Yeah, you may get three or four of my guys, but I will get you in the end.
3: Yeah, and we have. I mean, I shouldn't say we. I mean, I, I'm obviously I'm the descendant of the colonists that came and conquered the Indians. I mean, you, know, you can take that and go with it, whatever you want. But the white settlers produced a fair number of people comparable yes. to the Hawkeye character. I mean. A historical person would be Daniel Boone
2: or, or Simon, Simon Kenton, right? Or, or Simon Jim Kenton, Herod.
3: They could have waded into any fight and done the same stuff you saw on the scene.
2: Mm-hmm. If you come down to Kentucky, you know, and obviously I live down here and I've dug into the history a little more. Boone, Kenton, Harrod. Kentucky was a hunting ground for the Cherokee, for the Shawnee, for the Delaware, for the and when. The white man entered here, it was behind men like Kenton, Boone, Herod. These were guys, when you hear about places, people go, well, why is this called Bryan Station? Well, a station was a fort back in the 18th century, and that name has just hung on because these guys basically came in here and hacked out a, a space with a few family members and some frontiersmen. And Ken mentions it. it to our listeners, there is a series of books – that are written by Alan Eckert. There's about eight or ten of them, and you don't have to read them all, but Wilderness Empire, Wilderness War covered the period we're talking about. Their narrative history, they're brilliant. They're some of the best books you'll ever read, and they're not dry. So I really recommend them. Don't you, Ken?
3: I do. And the thing, it got me, again, I read Wilderness Empire and Wilderness War long before I saw this movie. And if you're watching the movie, for example, and go like, this is obviously a plot device. The idea that these British and colonists would just be walking down the woods and have Indians swarm out of the woods on them totally get surprised. You know, this got to be set up for the movie. It's like, no, that happened all the time. All it was like time. every year it happened someplace. Right. So it was just old news to people on the frontier that this kind of stuff would happen. To make a point to Mark's statement, Yes, there's guys that went down to to Kentucky and Ohio and hacked these little settlements out of the wilderness. And some of them survived. Many didn't. Mm, Many, you know, again, the Native Americans fought back hard and to address your question, Steve, it was like a steady 60 years of warfare between the time of this movie until like 18, what, 1820 before Finally, the the power of the Native Americans in this area was broken. All right, very good, gentlemen.
1: I think it is time for that part of the show where I ask uh, brother, what you drinking? Mark, you were uh, commenting about a, a beer you were imbibing with, so we're gonna we're gonna kick this bad boy over to you and see what you have.
2: Yeah, I found this one tonight, and I just thought good, bad, indifferent. The name alone means I gotta try it and pass it on to you guys. It's from a brewery, I'm assuming it's a micro-brew I'd never heard of, called Finch's Beer Company out of Chicago, Illinois, hmm. and the title of it is Fascist Pig Ale, <laughs> Wow! and it has a pink, a happy pink pig wearing wraparound sunglasses with a Colonel Gaddafi cap on. I don't know if you can see the Fascist uh, hold pig still.
3: Yeah, that's what he's wearing. Yep,
2: yep. Wow, wow. It, it is, and I it's 8% alcohol, so I don't tip the scales, but it's a red malt forward ale brewed with caramel malts and a touch of rye. It, it's, it's an ale, but it's got a little bit of that nice hoppy crispness, Steve. Uh, it was like 8 bucks. I thought, how can I lose? If you can find it, it's called Finch's Beer Company. They've got three or four other beers. I picked up their golden ale to try it this weekend. It's fun. It's a good little beer. It's a microbrewery out of Chicago, and I recommend it. So, Fascist Pig Ale. I think I'm going to keep the bottle because of a pink pig wearing a Hawaiian shirt, wraparound sunglasses, and a Colonel Gaddafi hat.
0: Yeah. So, Mark, when we're playing junta, we'll break this uh, this beer out. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Ken, what do you got there,
3: sir? I've been drinking, and I've consumed, it's all gone now, a blended custom drink, which is the Kraken Bacardi rum and diet coke. Ooh, this is going a little uh, the dark uh, the dark uh, rum and the uh, The light. dark and the light. It's a uh, it was actually very refreshing, very tasty. The crack you know, the, the the real reason was I was going to have just the kraken and coke, but I was getting <laughs> low on the kraken, so I had you know I only had enough to be like maybe an eighth of a glass, and like that's not nearly enough. So I got I got to strengthen this, so I pulled out my Bacardi and again. It was light, but spicy, had that spice, you know, nice edge to it. Uh, and the Diet Coke, of course, evened it all out. So I, I, I like my rum drinks.
2: Ken, real quick, I've never had the Kraken. It. Is it a dark rum?
3: It's a dark spiced rum. Okay. And I can, if you like dark rums or spiced rums, it's a nice, it's a nice mixer with like a, a Coke or Diet Coke or anything else that would take that kind of a drink. It's actually not bad, I see. No, it's, it's, if you said, you know, Captain Morgan or the Kraken in front of me, would I like rave over one or the other? It's like, not really. I'll drink either one. But I I think I'd have to give the Kraken a little bit of an edge. It's got a cool bottle. It does have a cool bottle, a little squid creature, you know. (laughs) And then, and also you get, you get the benefit that every time, you know, the guy, you know, I got this bottle because a guy brought it over my last party. Of course, you know what he said when he, what to open it
2: release the kraken
3: of course those of you that haven't seen this movie you'll need to go see
1: it awesome all right uh, clash of titans <laughs> uh all right chief shining dome what do you got there
2: <laughs> the light ah
0: mm-hmm. i uh, tonight i'm This is one of 12 beers that I received in my uh, first shipment of this beer club that I was signed up for for as a Christmas present. And um, it has uh, 12 different beers of uh, either porter or stout variety. Oh, wow. And I just – I I reached in tonight and grabbed one. Okay, they're from brewers we've heard of. There's been – there's some beers in there that I've had and showcased on the show. But tonight I happened to pick out of there the – Double Milk Stout uh, from Southern Tier Brewing Company. Uh, It's a milk stout. I've tried a milk stout before, didn't care for it. This is a double milk stout, and I must like doubles because this is much better than the last milk stout I had. It's uh, sweet on the front end and uh, kind of a little little hoppy taste on the back end. Kind of
4: like
0: you. Kind of like me. (laughs) A little little hoppy like a little little cute furry rabbit. So sweet up front and hopping around. Anyway. Comes in at a at a, at a, at a respectable seven point five percent. Okay, not bad.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I like How the bottle doing?
0: too. That's yeah, a very you know, like,
3: yeah. cool it's kind of looking nice to bottle. To it, yeah. I mean, it's very. Yeah, it's a, those of you listening can't see it, but they got a very well designed
2: bottle. Yeah. Art. yeah, and it's it's it is a good beer. It's a good I, beer. I, I could drink it. I, t- I tried their ale and was not impressed. So it's good to hear that their darker stuff is better because their ale was rather flat. I
0: would buy a twelve pack of this. Yes, definitely. Okay. I mean, I mean, that's the twelve pack. I'd, I'd buy a six pack. All
1: right. What I am uh, what I'm imbibing in tonight, as I said, I'm on a I'm on a little bit of a diet here. So, uh, in recognition for our um, uh, our British uh, cousins, uh, as they were uh, shown in this movie, I am having some Earl Grey tea. Poofter. Sure. That's okay, and even though it's not tea time, the British uh, or the uh, the sun never set on the British Empire, so it's tea time
2: somewhere. So there, you know, you need to put a little something in that tea. Yeah.
3: Earl Grey tea has good effects for your heart. I've heard it's, it's good for your health. So, oh, yeah. good luck on your diet. I, I that's an ordeal every guy goes through once in a while. I think. Well, like I said, I yield to no one in my ability to
1: consume copious amounts of uh, fire water. So uh as 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 our listeners probably well know if they've been listening to the show for any length of time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this proves he's not an alcoholic. He can put it down. I can put yeah. it down. Yes. yes. Well, well done, Steve. Uh, we support you and your
3: Yeah, I'll I'll respect the fact he's not boozing it up.
0: Like I said, give it a month from now and
1: I'll be incoherent again. All right. Uh <laughs> All right gentlemen, it is time for clips the favorite part of the show and i've got I've got quite a few uh, clips on this one and um, this one here is when the uh, British are sending uh, people out to uh, go recruit the colonial mis- militia to go fight the evil French. This guy was about as British as they could get while we're at your fort, what if the French attack our homes? What then, lieutenant
2: for your homes for king for country. That's why you men ought to join this fight.
1: You do what you want with your own scalp, and I'll be telling us what we ought to do with ours. You call yourself a patriot and loyal subject to the crown? Do not call myself subject to much at all.
0: A patriot. I could have swore that guy was a Borlawn. I could have swore he was, but. Nah. I love that I, scene.
1: And uh, let's see, number two. This is the uh, the colonial militia formed up, and they went to see the um, who was that? It wasn't Webb. Was, uh, um, yeah, it was Webb. Web? Well, that was Webb. Okay, web. so they go yes, to web. General Webb. General Webb. Yeah, so they go to see General Webb, and their whole condition of going on this militia is that if their homes are threatened, that they can leave to go back and um, save their lands.
0: I cannot imagine his majesty and his benevolence would ever object to his uh, loyal American subjects defending their hearth and home, their women
1: and children,
4: does that mean they will be granted leave to defend their homes if the settlements are attacked?
3: Of course. Yeah, there's something- I'm going to say something here. Mark will know what I'm talking about. But if any of our listeners decide that they want to play the, the Asiad computer war game, Wars in America, the French and Indian War scenario, and you have the occasion to depend on a force commanded by the general web leader in that game to come to your aid... Kiss your ass goodbye. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> don't just don't. <laughs> yeah, he. he Pretty General much.
3: Webb in that game. That that game that, says like General yeah. Webb will stick a shiv in you every time you're counting yeah. on
0: him. So General he's a fixed unit s- all the time. General Webb is a boob.
1: Okay, number three. Uh, this is good. This goes to Ken's point about what warfare was like uh, during this period of time.
2: Things were done. Nobody was spat. Those
0: considerations are subordinate to the interests of the Crown. A terrible feature of war here in the Americas, Major Haywood. Yep. Well, that was a pretty sanitary reply to a massacre, wasn't it?
3: Yeah. Well, yeah, that's Colonel Monroe speaking in the background. And uh, Colonel Monroe, he's, he's been sent there to do a job. His job is to defend the fort, not to worry about you know, all these cabins out in the woods. That's their problem.
1: Uh, this is uh, General. Uh, the French general Montcalm, and um, he's asking Magua, why do you hate Monroe so much? Why do you hate the gray hair, Magua? When the gray hair is dead, Magua will eat his
4: heart. Before he dies, Magua will put his children under the knife, so the gray hair will know his seed is wiped out
3: forever. And you know, Magua's a man of his word. As much as he can do. Yeah. This is one of those scenes that uh, went
1: on way too long.
4: What are you looking at, sir?
1: I'm looking
3: at you, miss. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That was okay. I had no problem with that
2: scene. It was was the date scene, okay? Time to
3: make a sandwich.
2: (laughs) It was the date scene. I have to say. For the girls in the audience.
3: Yes. Again, when Mark and I went to see this with Eric Badgett and Jason and the other guys, we were sitting in our row with our Raisinets and our popcorn. (laughs) But that theater was full of couples, romantic couples. Of course, wasn't a problem for us because we didn't have that problem. But, you know, for those romantic couples, you need this. I mean it was like, the Liv uh, Tyler
0: moment of this era. Yeah. Yes. Yes.
3: Thank yeah, you. It definitely was. I mean, this, I still remember about the same time frame, I was out with Mark at the gym one night, and Mark <laughs> made the comment, I went and saw Legends of the Fall with my date last night. And I went like Legends of the Fall? You know, it's a perfect date movie. It's like it's got all these great romantic, mushy scenes, but then it's got like trench warfare and you know, <laughs> Gun fights and gangland rubouts. Perfect date movie. Something for everybody.
2: I hate <laughs> so, that movie. And um, I hate that for the record.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it does have some stuff for the guys.
1: This movie had some stuff for the girls. Yes. Okay, number six.
3: We're not forgetting
0: Webb's promise. British promises are honored, and the militia will not be released. Because I need more definite proof than this man's word. Nathaniel's word's been good on this frontier a long time before you got
4: here. This meeting is over. The militia stays. Does the rule of English law no longer
1: govern? Has it been replaced by absolutism? If English law cannot be
0: trusted, maybe these people would do better making their own peace with the French. That
2: is sedition. That is the truth. Should have got it in writing. Yep. Yeah, (laughs) you should have got it in writing. (laughs) But one of the things I like is the writing. I like the way we you know we're going to throw terms and words around, and if you can't keep up, go get the dictionary.
0: Yeah. Well, in this case, there was a there was a there was a lack of writing because, uh, well, you know, they didn't get it in writing.
3: Well, it's a matter of interpretation. It's a it's a, a fuzzy fact pattern, as they would
2: tell you in law school. A fuzzy fact pattern? No, Mister Lawyer, I'm stuck on the term a fuzzy fact pattern.
3: Fuzzy fact patterns, yes. Sometimes it's a clear fact pattern. Now, I, I found him standing over the body with a bloody knife. That's a clear fact pattern. You know, there's a cabin burned in the woods. Somebody died. Who knows who did it? Yeah, that's a fuzzy fact pattern.
0: I happen to have a lime shovel in my garage. It's, <laughs> so,
3: get your shine
2: box. I thought, I thought fuzzy. Get your shine box. <laughs>
1: All right. I'm, I'm cutting this one off here. All right. Number eight.
4: What do we do about being under crown law? I believe if they set aside their law as and when they wish, their law no longer has rightful authority over us. All they have over us then is tyranny. And I will not
0: live under that yoke. Oh, so now you see what the game's about. Okay.
3: Again, what they're setting up here is, this is before the Revolutionary War, but you can see what's coming. Well, like
0: I said, earlier, you know this was the period where the British were learning exactly what this war was gonna take. They eventually carted some uh you know, they realized they needed more troops over here. they needed to adjust their tactics. you know they finally were able to defeat the French um basically through a war of attrition and blockading, and that led us to uh, the crown said, okay, well, now that, you know, this war is over, um, well, you know what, we, we need we need back. So that's when they started enacting all these taxes um, to the colonists to get them to pay for, basically, in their eyes, saving their ass.
1: Uh, let's see, uh, number nine, I like this one.
0: I'll cover you from the top of the bastion. You're not coming
1: with us?
4: i got a reason to stay. That reason wear a striped skirt and work in the surgery. It does. No offense, but it's a better-looking reason than you, Jack Winthrop.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is. There you go. Yep. All right, last one here. This this one should have been earlier. I like this particular one. Um, Mark, you'll appreciate it, too. This is when, uh, after Daniel Day-Lewis and SEAL uh, Team 6 rescued the uh, uh, the girls and uh, Duncan from the uh, war party. Duncan asked him where he's going. Heading west Kentucky. There is a war on How is it
2: you are heading west? Well, we kind of face to the north and real suddenly <laughs> turn left.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yep. And your point?
1: That was awesome. I love that.
2: Ah, uh, And the great part of that is you have to watch the scene. Because Daniel Day-Lewis looks at him like, you idiot. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Because he does. Again, that's the thing. Duck and Hayward, you know, Major Duck and Hayward. On one level, he's a clueless, foppish guy. He isn't, but in scenes like that, they, yeah, he comes. Out, he's out of his element. He doesn't know what he's
4: doing.
1: Okay, folks, that is it with clips. I think it is time for the man cave movie review checklist. Number one: Did anyone jump out of a window?
3: No, they had windows. I mean, this was after Rob Roy. Yeah, but I'll make the statement that. They, the Daniel Day Lewis, Uncas, and Chuk all leaped through a waterfall, which had sort of a not
2: a window, not just a window, a
3: glass like screen.
1: Not.
2: Overruled. Sit down, count. Thank okay. you. <laughs>
3: I, I knew I was going to fail, and I knew you'd shoot me down.
1: Number two, was there an irrelevant female role in the movie?
0: Yes. Yeah. I say no.
1: Take your pick of the sisters. I'll, I'll keep Carolyn and get rid of Alice or Cora. I'm sorry. We'll keep Cora. We'll keep Madeline Still because she was hot.
3: Again, Cora obviously is necessary, and Madeline Still does a great job. But I've got to say that, in my opinion, Jodie May as Alice is necessary because what she is showing is the again. It's I'm I'm seeing this as a clash of cultures. She's the person that when that clash hits. She can't handle it. And I think that that is a powerful part of the the, the motivations in this movie.
0: I see it. I don't agree with it. Um, I think the audience could be considered a clash of cultures because the brutality that she's witnessing was, I think the same response that the audience had when they watched the brutality on the scene. I think they were all a little taken aback by the uh, brutalness and, you know, and, and realistic, you know, people being scalped look like people were being scalped you know except for the couple of horrifying expressions on her face i mean i don't think we see much of her reaction to what's going on um you see her for some reason jump off the side of a mountain i still try to process that every time i see this movie i'm still not exactly sure why she's doing it but i'm sure that there's some philosophical reason
3: i mean it's just getting worse and worse and worse well, and you know what? If if you
0: have that, you know, low of a constitution, well you know, you know throw yourself off the mountain.
1: <laughs> number four. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what did I think of the irrelevant female? Um I yeah, you know, like I said, didn't need her. She was she was completely irrelevant on the role. I, I respectfully disagree with my uh colleague Ken. I, I just yeah, that did, didn't need her. Uh let's see oh I skipped one. Uh number three, going back one. Uh could the irrelevant female role be better played by Tonika Tang? I would say Mm -hmm. no, but I think Tawny Katane could have done a wonderful job as uh, Cora. She could have filled out that bodice a hell of a lot better, but that's, I'm just saying. Okay, silence. Number five, did this movie know what it wanted to do? (laughs) Totally. Absolutely.
3: And again, as we've commented before, Michael Mann went to great lengths to do
1: what he wanted to do. I don't. I don't know. Jeff's Jeff's squinting and squirming over there. I don't know if he's thinking or, or I'm, thinking. Or...
0: I am. I am refraining from any comment. I, this is a. I don't have a dog in this fight. Okay. Three out of four. He loses. All right. Uh,
1: let's see. Number six. Now, we talked about this earlier, but did George Lucas steal any part of this movie for Star Wars? I don't know. It kind of looked like they're on Endor.
0: Well, I was going to say, um, yeah, you had a superior uh, force um, being waylaid by um, uh, primitive tribes. Who then, you know,
2: shellacked.
3: defeated them. <laughs> yeah,
2: a legion <laughs> the of the best thing. troops. Well, <laughs> the Indians could be the Ewoks. The Indians could be the Ewoks, and the <clears throat> the British could be the Imperial Stormtroopers on Endor. Yes. Yeah, you're right. You got a good point, guys.
3: Again, the opening. I thought, you know, it, philosophically, the opening is identical to Star Wars. It's a text introduction, which you don't see in a lot of movies. Lays out, you know, this is what, okay, okay, stupid viewer, this is what you're watching. Boom, you know. Yeah. Watch the movie now.
1: But I think in movies like that, especially in these, <coughs> excuse me, especially in these period-style movies, you do have to lay out a little bit of a groundwork because, like I said, I think most people would walk in there going, okay, what's going on here? All right. number Next. M- number seven.
3: <laughs> these are not the wampum you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> This is not the (laughs) people (laughs) looking (laughs) for. Shit. I want to throw something out here too. uh, Not related to the checklist. I'm not trying to tear it away, but I thought this was interesting. Which is, recently I was reading something and I was following some links on the internet, and it took me to a story of a some guy that like was in the business of making tomahawks. For like reenactors who reenacted this period of history, and over the past ten years, he's found a new niche, which is making modern tactical tomahawks to sell to special forces troops, because they are using these same weapons and tactics <clears throat> places like Afghanistan. And I just thought, like, wow, I didn't know that. They don't advertise that in the news. You know, it- the, the hatchet is a pretty lethal weapon based on the
0: uh the physics that's involved with it uh, you know and you sort of see it in this movie i mean it is used far i mean it's it, it's like a club except it's got a blade on it you know you don't it doesn't it's not used the same as as a lot of swords it's it's a brutal weapon it's very effective
2: and jeff to your point if there was a category in the oscars for best use of tomahawk in a movie
0: this this movie Hands down, <laughs>
2: hands down.
0: Wow! And again, it it is so realistic. I mean, yep. it is, it's it's very graphic, and I mean, it really. I mean, I remember watching this; for, it, it caught me off guard. I was like, "Good lord! I I, I hope they paid those guys well because they're going to be feeling this for the next couple of weeks."
3: Well, they had that scene where they're scalp. I mean. They- Outright, blatant scalping right in front of you. I don't know how they set that up, but it was graphic and like I'm going, "Oh my god, they're scalping!" You know, poor guy. Ugh.
0: I don't know how they put the heart back in Monroe. I mean, I mean that actor open heart surgery on the field of battle—that is tough. Number seven.
2: <laughs> Get control of the podcast,
1: Steve. <laughs> I lost this along.
3: I, I have to take it away from. I, I'm sorry. I'm I'm I'm, ent- I'm enthused about this movie. You know, really. Just, let's just
0: say it. Ken is the one that's keeping you guys off track. It happened this week. It happened last week. Happened the week before that. You know, it, it clearly. Ken has the mantle now.
3: I'm a, I'm a son of anarchy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
0: gonna buy you a leather jacket with some rockers on it.
3: <laughs> was, a, was
1: there a B5 reference in this movie?
0: Um, I want to say that, uh, just to clarify, there was none last week, and there technically is none this week. Technically. Technically. There were some lighting and design guys, but, you
1: know. Yeah, we're, we're going for actors.
0: Right. So technically, so so I guess not technically, I guess no.
1: Okay. Well, let's see. All right. Well, that's the checklist. So let's go out to the, uh, the Man Cave movie review. And we are going to go ahead and start with um, actually – We'll start with Ken, since this is his favorite. We're going to we're gonna let him start off with the review, and then we will all follow up.
3: Well, I'm just going to be a man of few words, in that, well, m- much like Uncas. And uh, I give this a 10. I mean, this is one of my favorite, on my list of top movies. If you look at Netflix, I gave it a 5, which equates to a 10 by the scale that I'm using. Uh, if it comes on TV, I'm going to watch it. It does get a... F- fair amount of play it pops on here and there but again it's a 20 year old movie you don't see it often i i love the cinematography the score is great the cast is great but to me it's the detail that michael mann and the writers put into just evoking the period and again i'll comment that they make you feel like you're in the wilderness again this you know for as far as the eye can see it's nothing but trees and wilderness and that was to me was just a beautiful thing. I mean, because most, you know, most movies, you know, very seldom do does anybody try to set a movie in this period. So when they do, I like it. Uh, and again, I'm a sucker for accurate, fairly accurate historical dramas. So I give it a 10.
2: Cool. Very good. Uh, Mark, it's nice to be following Ken to be able to use his words and say that I don't have much to add because I echo his sentiments. This is one of my favorite movies. I give it a 10 for all of the reasons Ken outlined. Um, I would say to anyone who is who sees this movie and has a passing interest in learning more, anything written by Alan Eckert you pick up, you will not be disappointed. He is a brilliant narrative historian. And if you really want to dive into this and have the... End-all, be-all history of the period. Read Fred Anderson's book on the Seven Years' War called Crucible of War. It is the definitive book on the Seven Years' War. I love this movie. It's one of my favorites. And um, in short, Ken said everything I would have to say about this movie, and I would give it a 10. Chief Shining Dome, what do you got there? Wow. Um, I'm structuring my
0: ranking system here. And... Um, Trying to uh, trying to come up with a more uh, something that Ken can sink his teeth into. Um, Nuanced. I have I have uh, I have five categories that I'm going to um, rank movies by from now on, and of the it's going to be cinematography, um, story, um, acting, scene or set design, and um, um, a soundtrack. Uh, and and each of these can be uh um, you can get a total of two points. Um I I give the cinematography of this um of the full two points. Uh, this movie is gorgeous. Um and and it's evident from what we talked about earlier with um the, the effort put into it. Um, you know, twenty shots per scene and having to have somebody from Fox Studios come out to tell man enough is enough. Um, you know, a lot of love there and he did a great job. Soundtrack, again, I give it a full two points. I really enjoyed the soundtrack and I really like how it was mirrored with the movie. Um full just it you know, I could have some of this on my um iPod and listen to it. Um Story, I am going to give the story a 1, and and, and here's why. There are some elements in the story. I, I feel that the love story is, is, is forced. I don't think it's very natural. I don't enjoy it. Um, it bothers me. Um, there are some combat scenes, uh, even though I, I think they're realistic. Um, there's just I think it's over-dramatized at times. And um especially the scene where Hawkeye can uh you know go through an entire gauntlet of thirty seven people um, and in that time an in native American can't simply walk over and slice the throat of Cora um so you know i have some, I have a little issue with that um along with uh, some other um, choices that they make as far as putting the girls in 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 danger of you know riding toward the Native American line instead of staying with the British troops. Anyways, blah blah blah. Um, but so I give the I, I give the story a one point. The acting, um, I'm giving the actors a one point five for that. I do think there's again a, some uh, a little bit of uh, uh, some melodramatic acting at times. Uh, I find. The acting of Madeline Stowe to be very cardboardish. Um, I don't really care for it, uh, but I do really like the acting of um, um, West and, um, and, and and Hawkeye and most of the the British and French commanders. I really enjoy all those scenes and the, and their acting that went along with it. And um, again, setting um, this, you know setting up the set designs and the scenes and making the choice to go and do it in an authentic setting um, as far as um, the forest, I give that choice um, a, a, a full two points. Now, if you add all that up, it comes out to an eight and a half. But I have to deduct point 0.5 for one thing we never talk about, and that is sound quality of this movie, which in my opinion is terrible. The battle scenes are at a 10 and the speaking scenes are at a three and to have to constantly turn it up and down so I don't wake up my neighbors or so I can just hear what's going on pissed me off the entire week as I'm watching this show. So I add a smite. um, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and deduct 0.5. So that gives me an 8.0 for my rating.
3: Wow. Okay. Um, I applaud your detailed and cogent analysis
0: I thought you would I thought it would take us into an extra half hour of the show and um, um, Steve I'll turn it over to you now uh,
1: let's see jeez oh, we're out of time damn
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh no you don't uh, you start playing that music
1: <laughs> I should have started playing the music I'm going to have that as soon as he starts talking I'm going to have to get the Academy Award music and start playing it Uh, I'll
0: start doing this podcast from my car. All right. As soon as you do that, I'm going to walk up to your door and start (laughs) kicking it in. Or at least chipping away at it in the week from now if I'm going to get through.
1: Oh, nice. All right. Um, I'm going to just – I'm just going to kick this one off, and I'm going to give this one seven and a half. Really? (laughs)
3: Steve sat there quiet and respectful, and then you start chowing down. What is that? What's what's that? Bucket Cracker Jacks you're chewing on? What is that? Pretzels. (laughs) Sorry. Go on.
1: You know what? Please, Steve, continue. I obviously need to start drinking again because this is what happens. (laughs) Like I said, I I like the movie, and I'm going to give it a seven and a half. I've got. Uh, one one of the issues that I had, and it's the same thing that Jeff brought up, it was like the sound quality. Uh, like, and I, I have to almost echo exactly what he said. Yeah, battle scenes, it was great, but there were times when they were talking. If there was a guy talking and they switched scenes to to hear somebody else, it almost sounded like he was talking way in the background. And then they, you know, he's right back up here again. Then he's like way in the background again. It just, it really kind of threw me off a little bit on on some of those. But I will agree that that whole love thing was forced. It just seemed like. That just happened. It was like all of a sudden, boom! You know, I'm just going to really go with the uh, the long-haired, uh, smelly guy that's been out in the woods all his life uh, instead of the you know the the clean and manicured you know British uh, guy. But hey, I guess that's love. And I guess if you've got you know long flowing hair and you look like the uh, you know the guy from those uh, Harlequin uh, romance novels, hey, you got that going for you. So what can I say? But overall, I think it's a solid movie. I can understand why it's one of Ken's favorites. It's you know it's a period that um, you know that he enjoys. It's not it's not one of my go to periods. I mean I, I like it, but it's not it's not my go to period. Overall, solid movie. Great performance by Daniel Day Lewis. Excellent performance by West Studi who plays Magua. Uh, and, and I said, don't get me wrong. I like West Studi. I've seen uh, several things he's been in. He does a fantastic job. And it was just again, it's a testament to. How somebody could really play a good character where you really dislike the character, but again overall solid flick uh, highly recommend it but if you go to see this for anything, you get to see some really fantastic British uh, uniforms from that uh, from that period and um, and that's it that's my uh that's my uh
3: review i I think we can say again since I'm the one that sort of sponsored this movie, I'd like to just point out that all of our reviewers. Basically, like this movie, they all give it a decent. It is a movie that's well worth anybody. If you haven't seen it, watch it. It, If you're interested in the period, Mark's giving you some good leads on you know how you can find out a little more, get a little bit more in depth info. Uh, But you don't have to go and study for five or six hours before you take this movie in. It's it's a standalone movie. It's fine. I can't argue with the opinions of of jeff and steve they they've got a point but overall i still will say i I, this is one of my favorite movies it's way up on my list i i don't know how many of how many movies would be a 10 on my list i mean there's quite a few but this is one of them
1: yeah and that's and that's a good solid one like i said every movie's got a little bit of different thing when i start getting below a seven then it's like see now like if this is on tv i'll stop and watch it so it's to me, it's that type of movie. If it's one that I'm going to sit down and stop and watch because it's on, that's it's a solid movie. It's just, I mean, there's just some little quirks about it that you know that that I don't like, but uh, but overall, it's it's a it's definitely a must see must see movie. So uh, that's uh, that's it for uh, man cave movie review episode 49. Stay tuned for us next week. We're going to be talking about for our 50th podcast. We're going to be talking about Blade Runner. Uh, everybody who is uh, a sci-fi fan knows about this movie, and this is one that we have been talking about for probably about the last six months that we were going to do this for our 50th uh, podcast. So we are definitely looking forward to this one, and we hope you are too. So um, check us out at our website at www.mancavemovieview.com and look for us at iTunes at Mancave Review. And we're also on Facebook at uh, Man Cave Movie Review, and we're also on Twitter at Man Cave Movie. So uh, check us out there. Look for some updates of what we're going to be doing uh, later on. And if you've got some suggestions of uh, movies that you think would uh, fall into the Man Cave Movie uh, criteria, uh, let us know. Uh, drop us a, a note on uh, Facebook, and we will, uh, we'll take a look and see if it's something that we should uh, share with the rest of the listeners. So until then, this is your host, Steve Michael, signing off with my good and dear friend, Mark, Kentucky,
2: Slover. It was a podcasting party. That means they're going to be podcasting up and down the frontier. <laughs> Very
1: good. All right, and also saying farewell, adieu, and au revoir, is our other good and dear friend, Ken. Holy shit, that's a lot of Indians. Roni?
3: Well, I don't have anything smart to say. Yeah, <laughs> I should have thought about it.
1: God,
3: I watch you, the movie. Watch the movie. Nice.
1: Okay, folks, and also saying farewell and adieu is our other good and dear friend, Jeff, Chief Shining
0: Dome Muncie. And on the 10th day, <laughs> God said, I need a man that can outrun a deer through a forest, over rocks, through streams, kill the deer, drink his blood, eat his liver, make a vine from his intestines, and swing through the trees like Tarzan. So God made a frontiersman named Hawkeye. God said, I need a man that can dress like a Native American, look like Fabio, and be an uncle to small children he isn't related to. So God made a frontiersman named Hawkeye. He needed someone who could tell by footprints that men had evil intentions and meant harm to a column of English soldiers and could show up in time to save the girl. So God made a frontiersman named Hawkeye. God said, I need a man that can see in the dark over 100 yards, shoot a moving target, switch to a rifle he'd never used before, hope his target didn't kill the man before he's tr- that he's trying to protect. Between exchanges, shoot again, rinse and repeat seven times up to a mile away. So God made a frontiersman named Hawkeye. God said, I need a man that can say a few words, not take a shower for over a week, put a woman in her place, and still come out smelling like roses and win the girl. So God made a frontiersman named Hawkeye. He said, I need someone that can set the Olympic record for running cross-country, fire two muskets, one in each hand at the same time, and convince a Huron warrior that the gun he had just fired to kill his friend with was still able to fire and kill him. So God made a frontiersman named Hawkeye.
1: Bravo. Bravo. Thank you. That was very well done. I, I am.
3: It probably pays to prepare for these podcasts, doesn't it, Jeff? Actually, write stuff down. I think.
1: I think Jeff just that was just a stream of consciousness. I think. I don't think so.
0: <laughs> I, I would like to say it was a stream of consciousness, but um, it was a little Well, prepared. you know,
3: long and he knows it was
0: not the ninth day. It was not the ninth day. Mark, you know what happened on the like, night?
3: Like, like Mark was in the Boy Scouts, and I think we both could have just tracked, just like Hawkeye and Chingus Chip. We could have, we could have tracked that war party and divided their intent, right, Mark? Sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just by that, you know, broken twig and the scuffed rock.
2: Sure. Donny <laughs> beef jerky. Is that Bigfoot? <laughs> I've got
1: beef jerky, got plenty of it. Yeah, <laughs> Okay, that's it. Hope you like the show, folks. We got. I've got to close this out before we lose complete so control. Have a good week, and we will see you next week. Ciao.
2: you wearing a grandpa blanket. It's a cape. <laughs> <laughs> you the sachem of this movie tonight. You've got your rope, buffalo <laughs> rope.
0: You guys recognize me as one of the natural leader of this tribe, thankfully. Mm. Indeed. Indeed.
3: Drink that so, fire water.
0: Yeah. Mm.